1: $45 upfront for three months plus taxes and fees. rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: Since 2013, Bombus has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t shirts to those facing homelessness. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton Stevens, and this is the podcast where I ask my guests to tell me the five things from their life, four things they love, and one thing they loathe, that they would like to put into a time capsule. The things they love to preserve them, and the one thing they loathe to be rid of it, so that they never have to think about it again. My guest in this episode is the actor, comedian, novelist and playwright, Nigel Plainer, who even after 40 years is still remembered as Neil from The Young Ones. He was a founding member of the London Comedy Store and an original performer of The Comic Strip, the pioneers of the alternative comedy movement, appearing as part of a double act, The Outer Limits, with his friend Peter Richardson. They went on to perform many times in the TV series The Comic Strip Presents, Nigel's other TV credits include Filthy Rich and Catflap, French and Saunders, Jonathan Creek, Blackadder, Death in Paradise, Boomers and Episodes, as well as leading roles in Shine on Harvey Moon, The Grimleys, Michael Palin's number 27 and Dennis Potter's drama Black Eyes. He's also been in a number of films, such as Bright Young Things, Terry Pratchett's Hogfather, The Land Girls, Carry On Columbus and Brazil. In the theatre, Nigel has had an amazing career in musicals. He understudied David Essex in the original Evita. He was in the original West End cast of Chicago. He's gone on to perform in We Will Rock You, The Rocky Horror Show, Wicked, Hairspray, and most recently, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Nigel created the spoof actor character Nicholas Craig. He made two albums as the spoof rock band, Bad News, had a number two hit with the old traffic song, Hole in My Shoe, and a number one hit alongside Cliff Richard with Living Dole for comic relief. What on earth are we going to talk about? (sighs) Well, something, I should imagine. Anyway, here's our chat. Let's talk about the five things that you need to put into this time capsule. So the first thing is the River Thames.
1: (laughs) I don't know how we fit that into the capsule. And it is a moving thing at all times, which is its main quality is that it moves. I've uh, lived by the Thames for many years. I've lived on the Thames for five years on a big lighter barge in Chelsea, which was wonderful. A 19... 47 police customs barge with a with a wooden construction on the top. It looked like a sort of Noah's Ark. Yeah. And I've lived in a lovely flat looking down over the river for years in the Hammersmith area. So am quite happy to just sit there watching things go by. Yeah. And I far prefer it to going to the seaside. It moves. Mm. So anything that might, it sort of tells you anything that might be a problem today it will have moved on it's uh, the essence of what time is how to be patient the river remains the same but the water's flowing through it it's never the same water
0: yeah did you ever move about on the river then when you were moored there or was it a permanent mooring
1: no it was a permanent mooring it didn't have an engine my neighbors had to have go and have their bottoms scraped and so they were towed out into the middle and taken down to Isleworth, the dry dock at Isleworth. And um, that looked quite alarming to have your whole house, all your books and your kitchen and everything, suddenly out bobbing about in the middle of the river
0: because yes. it was a
1: substantial home. I mean, it was, it was bigger than, until recently, bigger than any flat I'd ever had, actually. I mean, it was 80 <laughs> foot long by 20 foot wide. Wow. So that's a, that's a big... That's big, yeah. That's a big... It's not really a boat. It was a skip with a house on it sitting mm. in the water. But it moved around, so you felt the current... It moved up and down, about a good 20 feet up and down each day.
0: I can see the attraction then, the attraction of, of, of that idea that you, you watch everything constantly change. Yeah, yeah. It's a good reminder, isn't it, of the fact that, that you know, what is here now won't be here tomorrow. Yes, but there's also
1: the fact that it remains the same. Mm. because it's the same river, so you can... I get excited by the historical aspects of the bridges in London. You know, if I'm walking into work, because I live just south of the river, I can walk over the bridge, and I, I I love that. Looking at St Paul's and the Robert Hook churches and all of the... up to Drury Lane, when I was working at Drury Lane, the little alleys and the, the 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 streets, you think, how similar is this to the way it would have looked in, you know, 1703.
0: Mm. I know when my parents were young, they lived south of the river, but very close to the Thames. So they lived in Bermondsey and Rotherhithe, that area. Mm. And their houses were right on the Thames. And for them, the Thames was sort of, was their seaside. Yeah. They would play on what they called the beach which I suppose was the mud when the tide went out. You know. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what they did in their summer holidays.
1: There that's is a strange. little beach now on the South Bank that's, that's been built. I and mean, it's a sort of fake beach, but it's sandy, right by the Festival Hall. So you can climb down the stairs there and play on a sand beach. Uh, yes, I've seen it. People make sand sculptures and things. Do they replace the sand every day? I have no idea. They can't. That would be too much
0: Trouble. But I'm amazed it doesn't get washed away because it's a powerful river, isn't it? The Thames, when it gets flowing. Yes, I once saw the, uh,
1: what we thought was a dog suddenly come out of the river at Putney, or a seal or a dog breathing out like that, and then realized, oh no, it's a man. And it popped oh, underneath, under, under the water, and didn't come up again. So I rushed down to the side. I was running and calling ambulance, river police, whatever seeing Mm. if I could, and I was on the shore running up and down there and eventually a a guy came and said, Lucky, you didn't go out. He's probably somebody who drowned days ago further up the river who's now passing down the river. We get them all the time. And if you'd gone in at this particular corner of the river, you'd have probably lasted under a minute. Good Lord. So I was, yeah, very sobered. Very sobering. Mm-hmm. Isn't it? I've written loads about there. I've written a, a whole uh, a, a movie script about God knows how many drafts called River Man, which is a very sort of spooky idea for a film. Very very moody piece, putting all the river in all my river tails, my tails mm-hmm. of the river.
0: I nearly bought a river barge. But my wife was worried about safety for children. Did you have your children with you? Ah, yes. There is that. Um, how old were your children? Well, I suppose they would have been about, when we were looking at it, about 10 and 8.
1: Yeah. I mean, I was recently divorced. In fact, they used to call the place I lived Divorce Wharf because there were so many uh, divorced people in their boats up and down this wharf. <laughs> and I did have my son, who was about five at the time, but he would come, it would be just me and him, and... I didn't worry about safety because we made some very strict rules and it was just me and him. Mm. For the times that I did have him, he remembers it as being, you know, the, his favourite time of his life, being on the boat with his dad. It's lovely.
0: And for you, just sauntering into London to do a, a play or a musical. You know, it was nice. Getting back
1: and he, you could hear, the as you came through the big gate that led to the pontoons, mm-hmm. there was a big wooden gate that clacked behind you. And it's on the embankment, so there was a lot of traffic, noisy traffic, noisy traffic. That gate went clack, and suddenly you've got the non-noise of the river coming up at you. Yeah. Total quiet, occasional (laughs) meh, of some bird, (laughs) and you're in a different world. It was lovely.
0: Yes. For me, the last time I went on a boat on the River Thames, uh, I was doing a play in London, but I didn't go on in this play until the last ten minutes of the play. So they gave me permission to turn up at the interval, which sounds like the perfect job. It was the perfect job. Uh, Well, one day I got an invitation to um, go to a book launch for Terry Pratchett's latest book. I really like Terry Pratchett. So uh, I went to this thing and it was on a barge on the, on the River Thames and everybody was standing around having drinks and I was having orange juice because I was going to go into a play and it was about um, half past eight. So I thought, well, I've got half an hour and then I'll go up for the interval. And uh, uh, suddenly the boat started moving. <laughs> I said to the man, where are we going? He said, down to the barrier. I said, no, I can't. I've got a play to do. And they actually, to, oh, thank goodness. Threw you overboard. <laughs> they should have done. They brought it back alongside and I jumped off.
1: That's God. the trouble with giving a party on a boat, is if you're not enjoying the party, you can't get off, can you?
0: No. no I think that may have been the reason, to make sure everybody stayed. I, I love Terry
1: Pratt too. I, I mm. read... 18 or so, 17 of his books in audiobook, um, um, the the unabridged versions. Wow. So they're quite long. You know, it's quite a long old read if you're doing an unabridged. But I got to uh, acquaint myself with all of those characters. A lot of characters to do. I've still got somewhere. I've got my cast list. Whereas each character <laughs> appears, you've got to remember because, like seven books ago, this character may have appeared. What voice mm. did you use? So I've got, you know, whatever the character name is, Hearthwit or something. <laughs> John le Miserier with, you know, upper lip problem. <laughs> not doing impersonations; I'm not very good at them. But just something in your head to have in your in your in your imagination. If I think a bit, John le Mazzurier, I I might yeah. just. Ooh, you know, I might just you know, whatever it is, just to try and differentiate all the characters. It was like mm. 50, 60, 70 characters, 20 wizards.
0: Yes, what am I going to do for another wizard voice? Yeah, <laughs> I've I recorded uh, audiobooks of the uh, the long earth series for Terry Pratchett,
1: right?
0: Yeah, and that's the same, that's five books, so not as many as you, but five, five books, and they're, they're long and they go all over the place. So they had. The character I remember having the most difficulty with was um, they go to an earth um, that has is populated by dogs, but the dogs all speak. So I had to do several dogs talking to each other. <laughs> that's about as about as good as I could get. Yeah, that's it. I just put a little bark at the beginning of everything, you know. So just go make i made some sort of overall decisions
1: like the trolls are all scottish you know and the the dwarves are all german or just something (laughs) so that you can (laughs) to let you off the hook a bit
0: you know well all right i'll put a copy of the color of magic or something on on the deck chair with you sitting by the river thames in your time capsule that sounds good to me so you can sit there and watch the thames go by okay that's the first thing. So what's what's your second thing?
1: The second thing is my shelf of shame, which is all the books that I intend to read but haven't yet
0: read. <laughs> is that what you call it? The shelf of the shame. The shelf of shame. That's very
1: good. But also on it might be some repeats. You know, I have re- actually read War and Peace. That is no longer on my shelf of shame. But it's so good I put it back there. Because I, I'd be quite happy to read that again. Really? Yes, it's a f- phenomenal it's
0: book. It's like a lot of those books that you think, I really should read this book. Yeah. And actually, if you get round to doing it, the reason they're so famous is because they are really good books.
1: Yes, but sometimes there's a lot of languagey problems, chewy language, difficulty of pomposity of delivery, isn't there? That make a, mm. a classic book quite hard. Whereas yeah. with Tolstoy, that's not the case. You're straight in. There's no problem with understanding what he's saying. He's talking directly inside you. He's a phenomenal writer, I think. And my theory is he probably didn't even know he was doing it. Because if you look at his life and his, when, when he actually spoke about his thoughts and what he actually did, he doesn't seem to have any understanding of humanity at all. But when you read the books, he seems to be wiser than you know to understand human feelings so well that uh, my my pet theory is that he he actually didn't know he was doing it.
0: I mean, he really? he obviously
1: knew how he worked hard to construct the books and to you know mm-hmm. he really worked. You know, I think War and Peace took him about five years, so he researched it. He you know he he did the work. But in terms of the the extraordinary insights he has into human feeling, you know, into what's going on inside somebody's psychology, it seems if you look at his life, if if he understood it that much, why did he do all those stupid things? (laughs) <laughs> that's my theory <laughs> that's my, luckily I'm not an academic so I
0: don't have to justify it in any way <laughs> although we're all quite wise aren't we, when we can sit down and consider something and think about it if you just are acting on instinct as it were, we're all idiots yeah, yeah that's, yes, certainly my case <laughs> so what other books have you got there that you need to read in your shelf of shame
1: well at the moment I'm on a jag of uh,
0: reading Japanese fiction. Murakami and that sort of thing. Uh,
1: no, I haven't read any Murakami. He would be up there. Yeah. The recent one just looks about 800 pages long and it kind of puts me off. The person who just said he's read would like to read War and Peace twice, which is about 1,400 <laughs> pages long. But uh, no, that my favourite uh, Japanese author is Tanizaki, who's at, at the changeover period where... The Meiji period was over when they wanted to westernise like mad, and some of the authors who became very westernised went back to their former villages or how and, and started to try and relive or resuscitate and not completely reject the earlier Japanese culture. And there's Soseki and my favourite Tanizaki, and they're writing amazing books which have no endings which are sort of they're full of this uh, typical japanese question mark in them in the in the story so the events will happen and you think ah oh, is, is this couple going to divorce or not ah oh, it's all about them splitting up and his father doesn't want them to and blah blah you know and so you get all into the sort of soap operaness of it and so they go and see the father And then they come back again and then it finishes (laughs) and you're left going, they haven't made up their minds. They don't know. (laughs) That's what this book's about. But all the implications are there for you to decide. You do, even the modern ones, there's one called kitchen by somebody called Banana Yashimoto. That's a good name, isn't it? That's a great name. She's actually called Banana Yashimoto. What should we call our children?
0: Um, apple? Banana. Banana, that's the one, yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I find them absolutely compelling and fascinating. So I'd have a, I've had a load of that stuff. I'd have yeah. that on my shelf for shame.
0: Well, you see, unfortunately, you're talking to a man who basically only reads factual books. Ah. I read historical books or I read books... give me information really i agree i
1: read factual books i will read history books mostly yes factual books Mm. that's why i would recommend you start reading japanese fiction okay because um it doesn't do that annoying thing that modern literature fiction does i I would get myself a little irritated (laughs) like watching the same drama series on telly all the time they go in phases, don't they? This year it was all younger men with older women.
0: So i read somewhere that, that uh, the death of the, uh, the great American novel uh, happened when Viagra was invented, because most American novels were written by old men who were decrying the loss of, of their virility. I, I, I sort
1: of agree, uh, Philip Roth and things. I, I can't ever enjoy it, because it always seems like he's just writing saying, and then I shagged this other woman. And then I shagged another one, <laughs> and then I, you know, I just—you can't. Yeah. I'm unstoppable. Although having said that, Saul Bellow did write one of my favourite books all time. The one he won the Nobel Prize on, and it's called *Seize the Day*. And it's mm. lovely and short, and it's tragic and excruciatingly painfully embarrassing. You know, it's mm. it's about a young guy who lives in a hotel that his father owns, and he's humiliated every day by the success of his father it's just it's excruciating i mean the way i'm talking it sounds like i'm a huge fiction reader but i'm really not most
0: of the time i read history books that's why you've got a shelf of shame
1: yeah yeah exactly
0: so um you don't need the terry pratchett to sit by the river you've got all these books to read yeah i've
1: got i've got a a lot of reading to do it's gonna be a lovely day it is because of my my third thing. If it's a fishing net, no, it's not fishing.
0: Okay. Okay, we're going to take a short break for a moment to bring you some adverts. We'll be back in the shake of a lamb's tail. Welcome back. Okay, let's get straight back to Nigel Planer and find out what else he'd like to put into his time capsule. Yeah, can someone get that sheep out of here, please? And can you clear that up?
1: My third thing is uh, trees, preferably a maple tree. See, I've gone all Japanese at the moment, haven't I? Mm -hmm. I like big, shaggy trees. Uh, That's what I really miss living in central London. Not enough trees. Yeah, the London plane... Very very nice, London plane. I was reading it came to London in the eighteenth century, and the first one is in Barnes. It's still there, still alive. No, really? If it's not, it was certainly was the first one, which then propagated itself into the, into the London plane.
0: I always thought they were
1: introduced to help clear up the air. Certainly loads of them down in Twickenham in uh, Marble Hill House and places like that. They would have, in the 18th century, thought, oh, let's have loads of plane trees. Mm. And, of course, the ginkgo trees, a much later a- addition to London. You know the one that looks like a clover? The leaves look like a clover leaf. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, in fact, technically speaking, they're not leaves. They're grass because it's a single stem. It's not a split stem. If this was ever properly... Broadcast in any way, you'd probably get lots of complaints saying that's that. not a ginkgo tree. Yes, 90% of what I say is probably <laughs> completely it's making it all up. Yes. <laughs> they knew that ginkgo trees had existed, but there weren't any in the West, and they thought it had died out because it was a very ancient tree until they found one in China. Suddenly, quite recently, in the 20th century, I think. Mm. and um, uh, took cuttings from that, and that's why we now have, you know, all over Battersea and everywhere, really, ginkgo trees.
0: But you prefer an elm tree, a great big elm tree, or you're designing your uh, capability brown garden. Yes, I would yeah. definitely
1: want some big English trees in there with, mm. with birds okay. in them because I'm a big birder, and it would be nice. Yeah. With a big tree that would have some nuthatches and tree creepers crawling up and down it. Because nowadays in London, all we have is green parakeets. They're everywhere.
0: <laughs> yes, it's true. Extraordinary.
1: Nowhere else. They've not, they've not made it out, have they? I don't know. Have they not? No, no. I first noticed them when I was in Twickenham. Mm. But even here up in central London, our wildlife is parakeets and foxes. Foxes just wandering across a main road, go straight
0: up to you. They just, they own the place. Well, I've got a pet theory about foxes, which, um, uh, once again, so almost certainly completely wrong. Yeah. Uh, But I think we ought to make the whole of this interview, us both spouting facts that are not true.
1: Obviously, we're proving that we do read a lot of fact books (laughs) then get the facts jumbled.
0: Yeah. The only reason to listen to this is to, um, check fuck it. Why is that called? (laughs) Check fuck it. (laughs) Check fuck it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Check fuck it or fact chuck it. Yeah. I, I don't bloody know. Whatever those words are. Yeah. So my theory about foxes is that the town fox, as I like to call it, is almost a different breed almost a different sort of fox like you foxes should be called country foxes and town foxes because if you put a town fox next to a country fox yeah uh, they're they're completely different shape their their coats are different in in the country a fox is short squat it's got much thicker coat which one has that the country fox, you see them in, in the countryside. Ah,
1: oh, you see, you'll have to describe that to me. Is that the place where they've got tractors and things like that? And trees, Nigel.
0: You should, you should come out sometimes. <laughs> they've got trees. But you see a fox go across a field in, in the countryside, and it's, it's a low squat thing. Whereas the foxes that live in the town here are tall and, and got very long legs. Country ones go
1: down holes, and the town ones look in bins.
0: Yeah, Over a very few generations, it's been an advantage for a fox that lives in a town for its legs to be longer. It's my theory that actually in the last 30 years, the foxes have split into two different categories. That actually you have a country fox and a town fox and country foxes stay in the country and town foxes stay in the town. There we are, but uh, somebody will have to uh, check fuck it <laughs> well, I think um I think we've strayed rather a long way from trees, but then you know no, not necessarily the countryside but trees it 's
1: what you really miss, yeah. and I have to make the effort to mm. go somewhere where i 'm going to have e- even just a day with some trees you know uh, trees all around that 's the one thing I really do miss uh living in central london i 've been working with um Adrian Edmondson. The last couple of years, we've been writing plays, and Mm. I leave his house, and I walk home through Hyde Park, Green Park, and St James's Park. Perfect. But it's three parks in a row, which is, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's very nice, but um, it's not quite the same.
0: Right, fantastic. So at the moment, we've got you sitting reading your Shelf of Shame next to the River Thames with some beautiful... Oaks and elms and really quite huge English trees. You're building yourself another world, aren't you? I really am, actually, yes. Mm.
1: And which leaves the fourth thing. uh, I am building a world, I didn't realise, because I could be quite (laughs) happy in this world with this uh, fourth thing, which is mainly it's olive oil. And the the other parts of it are garlic Mm. with the olive oil, and the third part of it is marmalade. Are you saying you put marmalade and olive oil on your toast? On the same bit of toast, yes. Really? I would definitely recommend it. I'm going to try it. You know, marmalade's never quite bitter enough, is it? You know, especially more the more commercial brands. It's too sweet. It doesn't have that real twang that good marmalade should have. Yeah. Well, try it with olive oil instead of butter on the toast. And then oh. you get the proper sweet and bitter feeling at the same time. It's marvellous. Mm. You know the way people in restaurants nowadays, they serve you some bread and then they serve you a little bowl of olive oil and everybody yes. sits there dipping their bread <laughs> in the olive oil. And, you know, that kind of idea caught on with me. I just thought, well, why aren't we doing that anyway? What, what, what is all this spreads, butters, spreads? Why not put the olive oil on? Because that's your favourite. That's my favourite thing is the olive oil.
0: I like olive oil with um, quite crunchy salt, so rock salt. Yeah, that's nice, yeah. yeah.
1: A good olive oil, is there's Mm. nothing to beat it. And also, again, you get the feeling, you know, this has been going a long time. Yeah. And the the Romans brought the olives to Spain, and some of those trees, if you're in Spain, some of those trees, they say, that's a thousand-year-old tree. I Mm. don't know, maybe they're older than that. And it's still giving olives off. It, there's an incredible feeling that this is what this is what stuff would have tasted like in Roman times. This is the, this is the stuff of life. You know, this is what European civilization, if you like that, has, has been built on. This uh, is olive oil. Mm. It's the best for cooking. You can put it in your hair. <laughs> you can <laughs> wipe it on your. You know, you, it, it's 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 an it's an all-purpose brilliant thing. Olive oil.
0: Yeah. My cousin uh, makes his own olive oil, and he gave me a bottle of that, and it was incredibly peppery. I mean, really hot. Uh, yeah, yeah. But I, I love the, the different flavors of olive oil.
1: I could quite happily do without all dairy products, but olive oil—you couldn't do without that. You can feel it, sort of oiling your joints. You, it's it's like car oil
0: for humans. <laughs> <laughs> so, have you got a? particular favorite country for olive oil?
1: Well, I would have said Spain because there's a place I've been in the in the middle of Spain, on where they get all the local award winning olive oils and mm-hmm. they give it to you for breakfast. They say, now this oil is this one, this is award winning for the area this one's this one, and today I'm going to give you this oil and it's done like almost like speciality wines. Do you speak Spanish?
0: I'm learning it yes. I think I read somewhere that you
1: you performed in Spain, did you? In Barcelona. I, I um, it's a bit weird. The um the young ones are still playing there. The young ones <laughs> is huge in in Catalonia in the in the northeast of Spain in, in in the the state of Catalonia, Barcelona, Tarragona. And the guy who did the translation is an Englishman who's half Catalan, speaking Catalan, and he works for TV3 there and did the trend. He's a really good comedy writer. And so the, their version of The Young Ones in Catalan is particularly good. And it had particularly good dubbing artists. But as a result, it's huge out there. So when I go there, I got invited to do a travel program all around Catalonia by TV3, Catalonian Television. And so I got to know quite a few people and I got to know him. And I, I got to know the voice as well. I had to do sort of presentations for this programme. I got to know the voice of the guy who dubbed me. Because if I did my Neil voice, <laughs> nobody knows, nobody recognises, you know, in this country no. you'd say, oh, hello, you know, everybody knows <laughs> that's Neil. Nobody knows it because they they hear, if I do it, I'll do it for you now, I go, oh, mal karma, mal karma un altro cop. That's how he talked. <laughs> he talks in this weird, and it, but it works brilliantly when you see it on the screen. It works really, really well. But so I can get a laugh doing imitations of the guy who dubbed me <laughs> in Barcelona. That's
0: amazing.
1: It's bizarre. But anyway, so I, I, I went there and they invited me to do a sort of evening with show. So I did that. Um, and then the guy, uh, Francis Humble is the name of the guy who did the translation. He translated a play I wrote called On the Ceiling, and that's still on in Barcelona now. It's a wow. it's a two-hander comedy play about the guys who did the plastering on the Sistine Chapel, and they get fired by Michelangelo. It's all based in reasonable historical fact. If it's got facts in it, I'll, I'll be
0: okay. <laughs> I like facts. Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, it's about these two guys. They did exist, Lappo and Lotti. They did exist. They were employed by Michelangelo. They were fired by him. And in my version, they sneak back in to the Sistine Chapel to try and chip their bits off. Um, anyway, <laughs> it's still going in Catalonia. And in fact, it somehow works better in Catalan than it ever did in English, because mm. they're more temperamental. They're more they get into it more than English casts did. Although they were great, the English castes, but that somehow it really found its home in Catalonia.
0: Do you know, in France, you talk about people dubbing people's voices. Tom Selleck, of course, all his programmes are dubbed. But understandably, if you look at Tom Selleck's face, you would imagine that he was a big gruff, Man, so in fact, they they have a, a Frenchman, yeah, yeah. And uh, then Tom Selleck came over to be interviewed. And of course, Tom Selleck's actually got a quite a you know, funny little high
1: voice. <laughs> what, what
0: the hell is wrong with him? Yeah, Clint
1: Eastwood also had a quite a high voice, didn't he? Make my day. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's a funny idea if you just closed your eyes, he wouldn't be at all frightening. Make your own day, yeah, <laughs> lovely. Right. Okay. Well, olive oil. I'm going to put a great big Greek urn. Yeah. With some dipping bread. Yeah, bread and olive oil. I'm going to. I'm going to give you a jar of marmalade as well because I'm definitely going to try that. Yeah, you've
1: got to try that.
0: I will do. Yeah. So we've got one more thing, Nigel. We've got to put in um, something that you want to get rid of.
1: It hmm. again. It might be several things, but it could be summed up by Jonathan Price <laughs> because <laughs> he's too good. <laughs> There's Jonathan Price, Hugh Laurie, he's another one. Yeah, You're basically saying good actors. Well, good actors who basically possibly are a little bit like me, uh, sort of my age, My like John Lithgow. Uh, I, I yeah. often get mistaken for John Lithgow, and he's brilliant. Um, mm. And Tim McInerney, there's another one. Yeah, loads of them, actually. A whole sack full of actors I'll put in here. <laughs> Although Tim's a bit... Because, Tim, we used to get mistaken for brothers and we could sort of do a double act together. No,
0: he's going in this. He's going in. So, basically, you're talking about any actor that might get a role that, when they're gone, you'll get.
1: Yes, you
0: got it. <laughs> all right, we're clearing the world of all rivals. <laughs> of all... Yeah, they're,
1: they're, I mean, they're, they're too good. Is that The problem with them is they're either funny or they... They've got all these talents and they are the right sort of age. The the ones I've mentioned all apart from Hugh Laurie have sort of similar jowly faces to me. Mm. Um, so they really are just, they're just too good at it. They're too, (laughs) yeah, just basically if they, if, if what would happen, you see, if they were all put in the time capsule leaving me here trouble is I'm also in the time capsule now with my tree and my olive oil and my you know I might have just wished the very opposite I might
0: be stuck there with them (laughs) they're sharing my olive oil they come walking by acting really well you're sitting there having a lovely day reading a book and suddenly you hear this beautiful projection and authenticity and truth they're very good on that so true they're so good at it the thing you're getting rid of in your life is um, is your enormous resentment. <laughs> <laughs> ah that's thank you for putting
1: <laughs>
0: is is yes is the worst part of me. I think we can put it in a little compartment. Great. Like, so you don't have to go and look at it anymore and you can you can let it go. Just let it go.
1: Resentment might be too strong a word because I don't it's not that I resent them it's that <laughs> I just want them gone. <laughs> <laughs> no I think it's more envy than it, it's nah. more sort of basic. Yeah. I think it's, <laughs> I'm just envious of them all for doing it mm.
0: so well. <laughs> Well, I'm going to take your envy <laughs> And you're going to put it in a box They're going to put it in a box I'm going to seal it up i might, I might solder it around the top there I'm yeah. doing welding now like I'm going to actually weld the thing shut
1: I'm, I think that's a good idea And then all of those poor actors They don't have to go into the time capsule They can just carry on, can't they? You won't care I don't care Well, I'm, what do I care? I'm sitting under a tree with
0: olive oil Looking at the river Exactly Well, there we are So I think um, we've sorted your life out
1: Yeah, thank you
0: Uh, You're welcome.
1: And obviously, no actors were harmed in the making of this podcast. (laughs) Thanks very much. What fun.
0: You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Nigel Planer. If you'd like to hear more, you can subscribe to this podcast Well, you can subscribe to all podcasts, but please subscribe to this one and you'll get all new episodes as they're released. You just click subscribe on Acast or wherever you prefer to get your podcasts. And if you get the chance to rate the show or leave a short review, we'd be very grateful. You can keep up to date with everything we're doing on My Time Capsule if you follow us on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook. You just search at MyTCPod or Fenton Stevens. This podcast was produced by John Fenton Stevens. The music is by Past the Peas Music, and in fact, you can hear the full track, without me babbling all over it, if you look for my Time Capsule theme tune on Spotify. This has been a cast-off production. So, until next time, I'm off to sit under a tree and contemplate the wonders of nature. (sighs) Ah. Yeah, I'll just check the weather forecast. Um... Oh, lightning. I'm sure it'll be safe. Bye.